Well, good morning. Really? Let's try it again. Good morning. All right, now we're here. All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 8. You're thinking, Mark 8, the whole bumper video is about Matthew 28. Yes, that is, you're correct. Uh, we're going we're gonna to recite Matthew 28 together, and then we're going to dive into Mark 8. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one. And a seat back in front of you, I think it's on page 895. I could be wrong about that. I just forgot. So uh, if you don't know where Mark is, Jesus put a table of contents in the front for you. All right. And so you can go there and get to Mark chapter 8 and you can be with us because we want you to be able to follow along um, and know that what we're talking about is not our opinion, which is ultimately irrelevant. Uh, but we're, we're teaching you the word of God, which, which is timeless and eternal. A couple of just uh, housekeeping items before we dive into this. Uh, number one, uh, at the end of the sermon, we're going to take communion. And so if you haven't gotten uh, your communion elements, you want to be a part of that, this is the least awkward time left um, uh, to go back and get those. And so, um, yes, Drew, go get your communion stuff, all right? And uh, so feel free to go back and grab that. And then uh, the other thing I want to make mention of is for the last 10 Sundays, okay? Wow, a lot of you forgot communion stuff, all right? Uh, For the last 10 Sundays, um, we have taken a break from the 930 hour. Right, the class hour has been off uh, to give our nursery workers, our kids' teachers, and all the classes that depended on that uh, stood down in solidarity uh, to give them a much-needed uh, uh, rest and recovery. And we stand ready to bring that back next Sunday. Right? August 14th has always been our goal. But we cannot bring it back without enough volunteers. And we still have some holes to fill. And so my announcement today is that it's on you. Right? We, we are ready to bring it back. We think there's a demand for it. We think people want it. But we're not going to bring it back without the proper uh, number of volunteers so we won't run people into the ground. And so there are, uh, there's a sheet back there with a few holes remaining. There's not a ton. Um, but if you've been praying about it and you would like to step into that hour in some way and provide that experience for so many people, we'd appreciate it. If you're, you've been attending one of those classes all summer that hasn't shut down because you aren't relied on this, and you realize like, just the benefit that you've had to keep going and you would like to provide that experience to others to have it, we'd love to have you be a part of uh, providing that child care or teaching uh, our young ones as well. And so uh, be praying about that. At the end of the service, I'll remind you. Um, we'd love to bring it back next Sunday. Okay, but it's, it's kind of on you, right? So we're going to wait and see, and, uh, and we'll, we'll remind you that at the end. Now that I've gotten that uh, sort of gracious threat out of the way, right, uh, let's pray, and uh, we'll, we'll dive into God's Word this morning. Father, we are grateful uh, for your provision today. We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful uh, for your Word and everything that, that comes with it, Lord. And, and so we pray that as we uh, continue this worship service on now, that you, you've already met us in fellowship. You've already met us. Uh, in, in, in the inhabiting of the praise of your saints, God, would, that when we lifted up your name, you were there. You're going to meet us at the communion table. You're going to meet us in the witness of baptism. And so we pray for the same thing, uh, just for the expression of your word, that you would speak loudest, that you would speak clearest, that you would shove all distractions out of the way, myself included, and that you would take this time. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, in 2009 in Switzerland, there was a a Diamond League track and field competition. If you don't know what the Diamond League track and field uh, events are, they're what uh, the best runners in the world do on non-Olympic years, right? And so everybody knows that the Olympics are every four years. You watch that. Well, those runners still run in the three years in between. And so one of the most exclusive leagues is the Diamond League. And so this was seen as an Olympic tune-up event. So some of the best athletes around the world flew into Switzerland for this event. And there's a guy from Ethiopia by the name of Hagos Gebrewet. 
who complete, competed in the 5,000 meter. Now, the 5,000 meter is not a sprint, right? It's eight laps around the track. You've got to have some strategy. And so at the start of the race, if you've ever watched a 5,000 meter race, they all kind of take off together, and they're all sort of like checking each other, how fast you want to run, how fast you want to run, because they're all kind of saving their energy for that last sprint at the end. And Gabriel was in that. He was one of the top runners in the world in this event, and uh, he, he kind of stayed with the pack until he thought the time was right, and then all of a sudden he just took off on a sprint and left everyone behind. He left the group, and he was sprinting down the stretch, and the crowd got excited and began to stand up, and they couldn't believe how fast he was running. And he pulled away, and he crossed the line well ahead of second place and just began celebrating. And he put his arms up. He blew kisses to the crowd. He started clapping, and he was pointing the crowd, and he realized they're not acting the way they normally do when I win a race. And that's when he turned around and saw all the other runners still running because he'd stopped a lap early, right? He wasn't really crossing the finish line. He just thought he had. And he's actually far from alone in this. If you, despite the number of races that professional athletes run, this, this happens quite a bit. You can do an internet search this afternoon and find multiple examples of these high-class, world, world-class runners just quitting a lap early and thinking they've won a race. And there's something inherently frustrating about these stories, right? because there's potential that was there. Clearly, Gabriel has the skill to leave the rest of the group, but what if he had just waited one more lap? There's potential that's ultimately unrealized. He ran his race well. He executed his strategy, not perfectly. If he'd have waited one more lap, it would have been perfectly. But he just stopped too soon. And so the question left every time this happens is what might have been? What would have happened if he'd have known there was one more lap? Now, we've been spending several weeks as a church uh, looking at this great commission. This passage in Matthew where Jesus gives the church our job description and where he tells us that we who are followers of him, this is what we are to be doing with the life that he gave us. And as I thought about this week, what about has become kind of an accepted Christian standard in our day, what came to my mind is stories like Gebrowitz. You see, the Great Commission is a passage that almost all followers of Christ can, can at least recite or at least know the general concept of. But this is how I've seen it practiced in the modern church, in my experience growing up and throughout, where a small group of us share our faith with others, even though we're all told to. We talked about last week how hard that is, right? Where a small group of us share our faith with others, and then someone believes in Jesus. They trust in him. They're saved, and they're baptized, and the church celebrates this, and rightly so. This needs to be celebrated. But then it's treated as if that's kind of the last big hurdle. Am I right to that? Sure. We, I mean, yeah, we'd love for them to plug in the church a little bit deeper, you know, maybe, maybe from what I can tell, the goal is that they would live a good, clean, sort of Christianized life where they don't drink too much, they don't cuss, they're a little bit more traditional or conservative, and they're just super friendly and nice to all they come across and do some good beads, and it's like box checked, great commission done, on to the next one. And I told you, when we started this series, I have three goals for this series. Number one is that we would all memorize the great commission. That's why we're going to say it out loud together in every service so that you can say it without looking up Matthew 28. But number two is this, that we'd understand it. Because if we actually understood it, we'd never see that as the finish line. And then third is that we live it. If we understand what Jesus calls us to, it will become clear that the common application of the Great Commission falls way short of the actual finish line that Jesus draws. Belief and baptism are in there. They're huge deals, Right? They need to be celebrated. I'm glad when we do. But to see them as anything other than a brand new beginning, to see them anything other than a launching point, is to draw a finish line where Jesus didn't draw it. 
And the Great Commission starts, I remind you, with him saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which means only he gets to decide where the finish line is. And so as followers of him, we must do what we can to ensure that Jesus won't find us, right, as his church, stopping our race early and acting like we've won the thing. Today the goal is clear. I want us to see where Jesus actually draws the finish line. So I'm going to invite Drew Allman up to read today's passage. And he's going to read from us in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 uh, through 35. And as he comes up, we're also going to put Matthew 28 on the screen for us all to read together. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with us to honor the reading of God's Word. And we're going to read Matthew 28 together, and then we'll turn it over to Drew. So join with me. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Take it away, Drew. Good morning. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed And rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me, and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Thank you, Drew. You guys can have a seat. Keep your Bibles open there to Mark 8. We're going to dive into that interaction between Jesus and Peter and then his disciples in the crowd in a minute. But I want us to look again here at Matthew 28 in the screens. And just, just to remind you, break down, this is our third week in this series, and, and the first one we covered, this, this line right here, where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, which is not a small statement. But he's, he's claiming to be the king of all the universe there, that he's in charge of everything, which means for us to understand that everything after is not a suggestion. Right, this is a command that we must obey. And then last week, Adam had the job of building an entire sermon on one word, which is the word go. Right, and, and he did well with it. And, and this, to this morning, I get two words. We're going to focus in on this idea of where Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples. That's what today's focus is, make disciples. Because I think in that little phrase, Jesus sets for us a finish line so much further than we often act or realize or operate. That two-word imperative is incredibly powerful because he says, all authority is mine, therefore, go and what? Go and make disciples. He does not say, go make believers, And so if Jesus' marching orders to us are to make disciples, then there's a really important question that we all need to ask this morning, and it's this. What exactly is a disciple? And so that's what we're going to use Matthew 28 and Mark 8 to answer. And the first thing I would tell you this morning is a disciple goes beyond belief. I talked to you about what seems to be sort of a a, a non-stated goal of modern Christian culture in that we sort of subconsciously make this distinction between a believer and a disciple. And I'll help you with that. We we define Christian as someone who believes in Jesus. 
And then we define disciple as someone who follows Jesus. And we kind of make it the, the idea that everyone has the option of choosing which one. And we hope you become a disciple, but some people just stay believers. And I want to warn us against that this morning. But it's really easy and understandable to see how we could draw these lines and think this is optional. And it comes down to the concept of grace. And to help you understand what grace is, I'm going to throw Ephesians 2 up on the screens. Which says this. That you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Now, grace is an incredibly crucial concept to our faith, the most crucial, right? Grace is the foundation of the gospel, it's the foundation of our mission, it's the foundation of making disciples, what we're talking about today. And to understand grace, you have to start with our standing before a holy God. Romans chapter 3 tells us that there is no one who is righteous, not one, that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory, that we are imperfect. While God is holy and perfect, we are not. We are sinners, and this is a big deal. Because of this, Romans chapter 6, that the wages, the cost, the penalty for our sin is death. Ephesians 2 says that because we, we lived in this way, we, we lived according to the ruler of the air, we lived in disobedience to God, we are children under wrath, that the wrath and anger and justice of a holy, awesome God have stored up and waiting for us. John 3, those who do not believe in God's Son stand condemned already. Colossians 1, that we are hostile and alienated from God in our evil thoughts and actions. This is not a small issue. The fact that I'm a sinner is the biggest problem in my life. Whatever you think your biggest problem is, the biggest problem in your life is, is that you're a sinner. And the consequences to my sin are devastating because sin kills everything it touches. It kills relationships. It kills peace. It kills connection. It kills intimacy. And eventually it kills me and kills my soul. Because if not paid for, my sin and my guilt will rightly and justly send me to hell for all eternity, which is where the concept of grace comes in. That our standing before a holy, just God is that we are sinners who deserve death and hell. That's what I deserve. There's nothing in my power that I can do to change that. So God, in an act of love and humility and, yes, grace, took on human form, sending his son Jesus to become a man, living that sinless life that I have not and could not, and so that when he went to a cross, he suffered an excruciating torment and died to pay our debt. That the death and suffering and penalty that was due for my sin, he paid himself with his own body and blood. And after that, what is required is faith and a total reliance on grace. Because if we truly recognize that we're the, what the problem is, I'm the problem, and we truly recognize how, the how deep the gravity of the problem is and that there's nothing I can do to fix that I'm the problem, the only right move left is to put my trust totally in Jesus Christ, the one who loved me enough to pay my price and to trust, hear me, completely in his grace and not in anything I've done. Because grace is opposed to earning. Grace cannot be earned. If there's something I have in my life that I earned it, I did not, it did not come to me by grace. Grace is free. It's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift in Jesus Christ. It's not anything we earn, but something that we receive freely by grace through faith, as Ephesians 2 puts it. And so we understand that concept, right? We take that and in our minds. We have a way of kind of separating these two things where somebody could be a believer and accept all that stuff freely but not be a disciple and actually serve the Lord in any way. And I think we need to be really, really, really afraid of that. And here's why. The author of scriptures don't make any such distinction. 
Jesus doesn't give us that option here in the Great Commission. It seems that for Jesus, there isn't even the narrowest gap between believer and disciple. They are to come hand in hand. One is to feed into the other, which means we really need to understand what a disciple is for two really important reasons. Number one, Jesus told him to make him, and we need to know what we're making. And secondly, and maybe most importantly, to find out if we're actually a disciple ourselves. And that's why I want us to look deeper in the story in Mark chapter 8, where we can see that a disciple goes beyond just being a believer. Because what you're going to see in Mark 8 is a dramatic shift, right? It starts so well for this guy named Peter. If you look at Mark 8, verse 27, Jesus comes to the group of guys following him. They're known as his disciples, and he asks them two questions. Who do other people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up on behalf of the group. He says, you are the Messiah, and the Messiah, what he means that? He means you are the chosen one sent from God. You are God's son, Jesus. And basically what you need to know is this. Peter nailed it. He got it 100% right. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, when we read the story, we find that Jesus immediately begins praising Peter for this. Blessed are you, Peter, because this wasn't revealed to you by men, but by God himself. And on this rock, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. It's a moment. Like it's a great moment for Peter. Jesus is a rabbi, and one of his students has just passed a major test. And what we see is this, that Peter's belief is dead on. There's nothing wrong with his belief. The problem is, for Peter, the chapter continues. Because Jesus then begins to tell these guys what being the Messiah means. How he's going to be arrested and rejected and beaten and suffer and die. And in verse 32, the Bible tells us that he's speaking openly about this. He's not hiding it. He's telling them openly what's to come. You know what verse 32 says next? Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Whoops. I mean, forget for a second the gall that it takes to pull aside and rebuke God's son. We'll just lay that to the side. What in the world is bothering Peter so much that he'd do something so stupid and foolish as this? We got to understand that that day that the popular understanding of the Messiah is this, that the Messiah was to come and establish an earthly kingdom. He was to come and establish Israel as the dominant nation of the world. And what would that mean for somebody like Peter? That would mean really good, really cool stuff for those in the inner circle, and Peter's in the inner circle. Right? In Peter's mind, if Jesus is the Messiah, he has hitched himself to the right horse, and what is ahead is success and pleasure and wealth and advancement and all kinds of good stuff. So when he hears arrest and rejection and death, well, that doesn't match his five-year plan. And I want us to read together Jesus' response to this and take note of who Jesus is talking to. Look at verse 32 again. It says, he spoke openly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And look at verse 33. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but humans' concerns. It's like, it's like we, me and somebody else would be having a private conversation here, and to, and to correct and rebuke him, I turn and look at all you, and I want you to hear how badly I'm correcting him. Right? He, this is not a private moment. Jesus is bringing all the rest of the group in. He says, you have the title of disciple now, Peter. Do you really want to be one? Because here's how you be one. You stop thinking about human concerns. And you start thinking like God does. Whenever Jesus would announce the arrival of God's kingdom, which is what he talked all the time that he came to establish, he always included with it a one-word command. You know what it was? Repent. Repent literally means to change the way you think. Here in Mark 8, Peter is a believer. 
He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus is the Son of God. But if he was to become a disciple, he was going to have to change the way he thought. He couldn't keep all his old goals. He couldn't go on living for the same purposes and the same ideals, but have belief laid on top of it like a little cherry on top of a sundae. No, the call to discipleship is a call beyond belief. It's a reorientation of who you are and what you do and what you think and what you're about. It's accepting Jesus as Savior, yes, but it's also accepting him as Lord. Because the aim of your life will be to know him. The aim of your life will be to serve him and to please him and become like him, which means you think the way that he thinks. And you pursue what he would pursue. And you love what he would love, and you reject what he would reject, and you live for the mission that he gives us. Peter expressed the right belief and was immediately praised. And then what happened next is he wanted to have that belief, but keep his own agenda and his own dream and his own life plan, and Jesus calls him Satan. Now that reaction from Jesus alone should wake us up should shake us to our core and tell us what he expects is that we become disciples and a disciple goes beyond belief. We cannot draw the finish line at the baptism waters. That is merely the first step in a lifelong race. Disciple goes beyond belief and secondly, a disciple grows in love and obedience. Let's continue in Mark 8. Again, I want you to note who Jesus is talking to. Right off that in verse 34, he's not just talking to the disciples anymore. What's he do? Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. This message is too big and too crucial for just the 12. And so he calls the whole crowd that's been following him over, and he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, now you need to know what he's inviting them to there. Right, in the language and culture of that day, if there was a rabbi and you wanted to be his disciple, then you would start traveling with him and follow him. And so this is what he's saying to them. Any of you who want to be my disciple, here's what it is. And then he defines it for them. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me. And I want us to break these down and understand what he's saying. To deny self really is just obedience. Right? And, and we've, we've seen a bad example from Peter already, so let's go easy on him and show a good example. Right, so we can understand what this denying self leading to obedience is really about. In Luke 5, we're told the story of when Jesus calls Peter as a disciple. And, and Jesus walks up to the shoreline. And there's a huge crowd of people following him, expecting to be taught by him and healed by him and all these things. And he sees on the edge of the water these fishermen who are cleaning their nets. And the Bible says they've been out all night. And to try to make a stage where he can teach a crowd, he asks one of the people who owns a boat, can I get in your boat and can you push out a little from shore and then from here I can address this big crowd. And so the owner of the boat agrees and when he's done speaking, Jesus turns to Peter who owned the boat and he says, go out into deeper water and let your nets down again for more fishing. And in Luke 5 verse 5 we have Peter's answer. Master Simon Peter replied, We've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Do you catch how loaded that sentence is? Peter's not an amateur. He owned the boat. This is how he made his living. This is what he did in his life. This is what he, he knows there are nights when the fish just aren't biting. 
And those guys, professional fishermen, have been out there all night and caught nothing. You can imagine all the different stri- tricks and all the different strategies they'd employed, all the different areas they tried, and they call it a night. They're just going to accept the loss for what it is. They're going to go back to shore and clean up the nets, and they can finally go home and just go to bed. And then Jesus strolls up and is like, can you stop that and just push your boat out for a little bit? And Peter's been up all night, and he's tired, and he's frustrated, and he has nothing to show for it. And when Jesus is done teaching, he's like, hey, Peter, let's go fishing. And I can promise you this. There's not an ounce of Peter that wants to do it. Not one. His emotion, his desires, and his physical wants are all aligned. Get me out of this boat and get me into a bed already. And he says as much. He says, Lord, we've done this all night. But here's the key phrase. But if you say so, if you say so, then we'll do it. That's the language and posture of a disciple. This is not what I want to do. This is not what I'd like to do. It's not what I'd choose if you left it up to me. It's not what I feel like doing. But if you say so, Lord, I'll do it. And of course, if you know the story, Peter is immediately rewarded for this obedience. And a disciple grows. A disciple grows, is continually growing in obedience to Jesus. Disciple also continually grows in love for Jesus. In verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel, he will save it. Now you understand that phrase, to lose your life. This is a willing surrender and a giving up of your life. We did a study uh, for a long time in Timothy. In, do you remember Paul's kind of parting shot to Timothy at the end of that second letter? He wrote in 2 Timothy 4, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. You see, Paul knew when he wrote that letter, he's about to die for Jesus. And, but he didn't fear it. He had total peace about it. And the reason why, as we talked about, is back in Philippians, when he's writing to that church, he writes that he saw his everyday life as a drink offering before the Lord. That every day he poured himself out for Jesus. And so here's what this means. Losing your life for Jesus doesn't mean dying for him in some blaze of glory. Because dying for Jesus is a whole lot easier than living for him. Losing your life for Jesus is the giving up of your life, your hope, your dreams, your ambitions, your plans, your schemes to his rule and his reign and his mission. And some of those things he created you to do, and so he might heighten them, but some of them he's going to ask you to toss out and let go of. You didn't think that taking up your cross would be costless, did you? Losing your life for Jesus is is loving and valuing Jesus more than your own well-being. Losing your life for Jesus is loving him more than your own convenience. It's loving him more than your own preferences and your own plans and your own reputation and status. It's loving him more than your own dreams and desires. To deny self is obedience. To lose your life is to love him. And to follow him is a combination of both. To follow him means that he's out in front leading And not me. If God's your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. Get in the back already. He's leading. It's our job to follow. And and when we do that, he might take us where we don't want to go. He might ask for more than we would rather him ask. But we go because out of our love for him that results more and more in our obedience to submission, we follow where he leads. And thirdly, this should be obvious when we read the Great Commission. But a disciple makes other disciples. I mean, the most obvious aspect of this two-word command from Jesus is the one that's most, obvious, uh, most often forgotten. We cannot forget that two-word command, make disciples. 
Adam said last week, to receive God's forgiveness for my personal salvation only robs the gospel of its intended work in my life. This goes further than just sharing your faith with non-believers. We need to start there, right? But it's incumbent upon all of us who follow Jesus for some time to invest in and build up and make disciples of new believers. And nobody gets to sub this out. We've had nine baptisms the last two weeks as a church. We've got another one today and more coming next week. Praise God. Amen? But you know what that means? That means our, our work as a church is not done. It's just starting. We need people in this congregation who are willing to meet with new believers and help get them grounded in the faith. We need disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples because that is precisely what Jesus commands us to do. Grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. If you have truly tasted the free gift of grace in Jesus, then no time should be wasted on making a distinction between a believer and a disciple. We are told by the one with all authority, the one who delivered to us that immense grace, the one who said the Great Commission, become disciples. There's no other option. And in the Great Commission, we're told to make disciples. We cannot draw a finish line short of where Jesus draws it. And so what do we do? My first encouragement to you is to simply ask yourself the question, am I really a disciple? Don't answer this for somebody else. Don't think about how so-and-so needs to be listening to the sermon. Ask yourself the question, am I a disciple? Just as Jesus put the pressure on his guys, who do you say I am? Make yourself answer this. Am I a disciple or have I drawn a finish line where Jesus didn't draw it? Am I a disciple or have I become comfortable receiving his grace without submitting to his lordship? Am I really a disciple or have I settled for a Christianized life that isn't that different from how an atheist would live, only maybe just a little more PG? Am I a disciple or do I have the same goals and the same ambitions and make decisions in similar ways and rarely deny myself, hardly ever take up a cross, but am a nice person? Am I a disciple or if I stop believing in Jesus tomorrow, how different would my life be? And if there's not a dramatically long list of answers to that question, then you know pretty quickly you haven't become a disciple. The disciple grows in obedience to Jesus and grows in affection for Jesus, which is why we should always have a training mindset. I'm old enough to see a lot of my favorite athletes retire. I've listened to their announcements, watched their press conferences, and almost to a person, they've said the same thing. Still love the game, still love game day. Their bodies were just no longer up for the preparation required. I saw an interview with a former NFL player, and he was asked the question, how did it feel to get paid to play a game? And he said, nobody paid me to play a game. He said, when I signed my contract, I told the owner, you you were paying me from Monday through Saturday. Sunday's free. I would do that for free. When this guy retired, he just wasn't up for Monday through Saturday anymore. The preparation was too hard, too demanding, too grueling, and we have the same temptation in our walk with Jesus. One of the greatest temptations in the draw away from being a disciple to being a believer is just this. It's the temptation to rest on your laurels. To become content with where you are in your spiritual life. To think that somehow God's gotten enough from you. You're one of the good ones. What more could he want? Maybe it's as simple as you're just physically tired. Maybe you've served for years already and things are a little harder for you. Maybe you have 
shared your faith and led some people to Jesus, and you think back on those times memorably, you've checked that box, or maybe it's as simple as you have other things you would rather give your time to, even if you don't want to admit that out loud. But regardless, you have crossed the finish line that you drew yourself, and you aren't up for the cost, and you aren't up for the training, and you aren't up for the effort, and you aren't up for the prep that it takes to go further. And here's what Hebrews 12 says. It says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. The race that lies before us, the language there is the race that is marked out for us. The race is already drawn. The finish line has already been set and we don't get to move it. And this is Jesus' finish line. You are a disciple you continually grow in obedience. You continually grow in love. You are making other disciples, which means you are constantly multiplying yourself. You are taking what he's done in your life, what he's given you, and investing it into the lives of many others, multiplying their blessing. And this is going to require a lot of us. But if there's one thing that he doesn't leave room for in the Great Commission, you know what it is? Idleness. There's no room in it. That's why the first command is to go, and the second is to make disciples, and the third is go ahead and go to all nations. So pursue Jesus. Pursue his word. Invite his good critical inspection. Never, ever stop trying to improve. Never, ever stop asking him to transform your heart and character. Never, ever stop serving him or his gospel or his mission or his church. Never, ever stop sharing your faith. Never, ever stop investing in newer, younger believers. Never, ever stop praying for non-believers. Never, ever coast out your days in some sort of self-prescribed, chosen spiritual retirement. Everywhere you go, God is there. Everywhere you go, people are there. And he's at work, and the mission is right in front of you. We are an athlete who has not retired and will not retire until God takes us home for all eternity. And so never drop the training mindset. Never rest on your laurels. And lastly, increase your affection for Jesus. Here's what I know about you, even if I don't know you at all. You serve what you love. You pursue what you love. You guard what you love. You give your passion and energy and time to what you love. And nobody, we know this, but nobody deserves our love more than Jesus, no matter how much we struggle to give it to him. And so three Really simple suggestions that help you increase your love and affection for Christ. Number one is just pray and ask him to help you love him more. Now, I don't know about you, but I like praying to get a yes. Maybe you like the mystery. Maybe you like praying for things and be like, boy, I don't know where God's going to go on this one. If I'm going to take the time to pray, I'd like to know I'm getting a yes. And this is called praying to get a yes. God, you have designed me in a way that I will operate best. I will find and fulfill my purpose. I will bring you glory when I treat you as the most important relationship in my life. And so can you help me feel and believe and act like that? You think he's going to say no to that? He's going to say yes to that. So literally, just pray and ask him to help you love him more. And secondly, pursue that relationship as if it's actually the most important one. Give him your first and your best. Find what ignites your walk with him and do those things. And by the way, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. To those who know you, to those who are around you and live with you and are in your life, it's really not hard to see what matters to you most. You might think you have us fooled, but you don't. And if you're totally blind to it, ask those around you and ask them for brutal honesty. They will tell you what it is you love the most because it's obvious. It's what you pursue the most. 
It's what gets the most of your emotion. It's what gets the most of your passion. It's what's most important to you. And it's very possible that it's different than what you're telling yourself all along is most important. And so ask. And then your relationship with God is your most important relationship in your life. Do you treat it as if that's true? And then lastly, I just tell you this. Act like you love him, and in due time you will. It's a popular phrase, fake it till you make it. It's a little cavalier for such an important thing, but the concept is strong. C.S. Lewis wrote about this a lot. The more and more you act like you love someone, the more and more you actually will. And so the more and more you act like you love God, the more and more you live in obedience to him, when you don't feel like it, the more and more you try to please him, when you don't feel like it, you're going to start feeling like it. You actually start to love him more. You actually start to feel the blessing of being in his will. You actually start feeling the immense blessing of having fellowship with him. You actually see him move in ways that you never thought were possible, and you just begin to start loving him more. I can't get that image of Gebruet out of my mind, where he crossed a line that he thought was the finish, and he began reveling in what he had done, waving to the crowd, arms in the air in celebration, blowing kisses, but he hadn't run the race that was marked out for him. And to lose a track meet that you would have won stinks, but it's not that big a deal. But can you imagine standing before Jesus, believing that you'd won the race, only to realize you stopped running before you got to the finish line? The Great Commission is the race that has been marked out for us. It's our marching orders by our God and King. We must understand the fullness of what we're being called to here, and then we must live it out. And belief is crucial. We must begin there. But it's not the finish line. We must become disciples who make other disciples, and we must run that race for however long the Lord gives us on this earth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the clarity your son used when he gave us the Great Commission. I thank you for the clarity he used when he told us what our lives should be about, for the clarity that was there when he marked out our race for us. And Lord, we are so prone to draw a finish line where you didn't draw it. We're so prone to finish a lap or two or even multiple laps early and wave our hands and blow kisses to the crowd thinking that we have done everything that you could ever want thinking you were getting a good deal out of us. And Lord, may the concept of grace come back to our minds and help us understand that could never be the case. What we deserve is death. What we deserve is punishment. What we deserve is hell. And you stepped in and saved us. And so it is nothing for us to serve you with every day of our lives. It's nothing for us to give you a response to that tremendous blessing. And so God, I pray that there's anybody in this room or within the sound of my voice who's, who's not yet a believer. God, they've never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life, that today would be their day of salvation. They would put that trust, they'd put that faith, they'd put that belief in him now before it's too late. And then for everybody else who's done that, who's solidly in the believer camp, may we really ask ourselves the question, am I a disciple? Have I progressed beyond just belief? Have I grown in love? Have I grown in obedience? Am I making others disciples? Or am I still living out my faith in a very egocentric, self-centered way? 
Lord, would you reveal to us the gaps and areas? Would you help us to know you've never called us to be believers only? You've called us to progress to disciple. As we come to the communion table together as a church, would you meet us here? Lord, as we see the wonderful witness of baptism, would you inspire more obedience and faith in all of us? And would you do this for your sake and your glory? We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, for our response time today, we're going to come to the communion table together as a church. And for that, I'm going to invite one of our elders, Doug Miller, up. He's going to lead us during that time.